0: So on this episode of Fish's Call Sheet, to really dive into the multi dimensional layer of entertainment, I have a multi-hyphenated talent, a writer, director, producer, somebody I'm envious as a podcaster, a, a blogger. Uh, he's done a little bit of everything. And then rarely am I so jealous, but he's also been a baseball announcer, which is a passion after my own heart. Welcome to Fish's Call Sheet, Ken Levine. Welcome. Thank you very much, Michael.
1: Great to be here.
0: I don't even know where to start. There's so much stuff to go over. Um, maybe I'll just briefly touch on baseball because it's my passion. I was a baseball player. Okay. How awesome is it to announce a game, to get to share your passion with the world?
1: It was, it was the greatest. And there was, there was one day, because I grew up in Los Angeles, and Vince Scully was my idol growing up. Me too. And... Um, I eventually, I did play-by-play for the Orioles and the Mariners and the Padres, but eventually I did Dodger Talk for eight years, and so was associated with the Dodgers and worked alongside Vin Scully. And there was one day when I got to fill in and do the radio play-by-play, and it was a TV game, and when those occurred, Scully would do the first innings simulcast, then he would do the remaining six, on television, and he would toss it to the radio guy who would finish out the game. And so that one day, that one glorious day, Dodger baseball was broadcast by Vin Scully and me. Awesome. And it's like, that's an unbelievable moment in my life. And I still have on tape when he tossed it to me. You know, and he goes, and now for more play-by-play, here's Ken Levine. So, yeah, that um, was, was truly um, the pinnacle. People say, yeah, wouldn't you like to call a World Series and everything? I thought, yeah, that would sure be great. But doing a Dodger game with Vin Scully, and, of course, now that he's retired, yeah. never happened again.
0: So that was my big thrill. Okay, moving to entertainment, I want to talk to you first about writing. Writing is such a complex web. I write, um, we're pitching all these shows. We're trying to sell shows. You've launched shows. You started shows. You've been a showrunner. What do people think writing is like from the outside in the entertainment industry? What do people think that job is? And then what is it really?
1: Well, I think people think that we put stuff down in a script and then the actors toss it and ad lib and all of the great Hawkeye lines, uh, were created by Alan Alda but uh, the the truth is that on most shows there is not a word that the actors are speaking that was not written for them and you know we we do more as comedy writers people think oh okay you're all just mel brooks you're all just sitting in a room tossing out jokes and it's way more than that we sit in a room and basically have to create the world, set the tone of the show, protect the characters, delve into the characters as to who they are, and come up with stories that are fresh and original and service all the members of the cast and play to the strengths of cast members and to uh, move away from the things that they struggle with and rewrite and constantly change and constantly revise and try to improve. And we sit in writers' rooms after a rehearsal and have long, long discussions on characters' motivation and their attitude and how we see this moment in the big picture of the series. And on top of all of that, yes, we then have to make the scripts extremely funny. Funny enough that millions of strangers sitting at home watching on TV will actually laugh.
0: Um, so we, we really do a lot. I don't understand because so many actors, and, and I'm not this way, I feel like are afraid to give credit to writers. I feel like they think that diminishes what they do or their, their gift.
1: I have to say I've been very lucky working on shows like MASH and Cheers and Frasier, where the cast recognized what great writing they were given. And uh, on all three of those shows, I I have to say that uh, the writers were afforded tremendous respect. But what you're saying is true in a lot of cases with a lot of shows. It's like everybody thinks they can be a writer, okay? Everyone, you know, as long as you can type on a computer, uh, you can be a writer. Um, How many people watch bad television and go, oh God, I could do better than that. (laughs) I I was one of them. Um, But it's, it's extremely difficult. And the other thing is that as a writer in television, you really have to be a professional. And that means you have to be able to perform on demand. I remember a, a number of years ago, there was a TV commercial for Swiss Miss. And in the commercial, this writer shows up at this hillside cabin. And the cabin is beautiful and woodsy and cozy. And he makes the Swiss Miss and he lights a fire and he sits down at his computer and there's this panorama of the Alps or something that he's looking out at. He takes a sip of that Swiss Miss, and it's like, ah, okay, uh, I think the muse has hit me. I think I'm ready to write. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. we're sitting there at three o'clock in the morning, um, you know, drinking coffee that was made at nine o'clock and we're not leaving. Until the script is done, and uh, it's a 35 page script, and we're on page 18. So,
0: and, and we it's don't go home. It's until all going to work done. in the morning, right? There's no going home, and right, it's all got to you know, work. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you know what, uh, let's take the weekend off and tackle this on Monday. No, there has to be a script at nine o'clock in the morning on the stage, and you have to fix it, and you have to fix it now. And so a lot of pressure comes along with not just having the creative gift, and it truly is a gift to be able to think funny and write comedy, but you have to be able to perform on demand. And um, that, takes, that takes a lot of work. And we never have
0: Swiss Miss in the writer's room for some reason. I used to love sitting and listening to the writer's room. And I was the guy I would sit upstairs because the office is above us. You could hear into our writer's room and our people were kind of loud. And I used to (laughs) love late at night to listen into pitching of a joke and the argument. And this word is funny. And that word is not funny. And these words are funnier or they, or, put the joke at the end of the line and put whatever expositional thing you need towards the front because otherwise, the exposition at the end steps on the joke. There's all of these mixed and matched and then depending on the character and the script and everything else, sometimes you break those rules and you move things.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, You know, somebody will pitch a joke in a room and you'll go, OK, great. I kind of like that area. But instead of a Ford Taurus, what if it's a Volkswagen Passat? Is that funnier? And you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And other times, someone will pitch a joke, and everyone in the room laughs. When I'm running a room, I say, put it down just like that. Because then somebody will say, well, wait a minute. It sort of doesn't make sense. And wouldn't it be better if Passat was at the end of the line instead? Of, and you just go, this is what we laughed at. Right. In this form, we know it works in this form for whatever reason. So that's what's going into the script word for word.
0: Yeah writer's rooms are this weird combination of it's like uh if a bunch of people were doing stand up comedy but all had to be mindful that a network and censors were going to go over what they were saying at the same time right yeah i mean i say it's like 18 cats with
1: one ball of socks
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and that's that's kind of what it's like and the rooms do get raucous probably less so now because we live in a much more PC woke world, but uh, the rooms um, do get raucous and they they do get salty. And uh, it's all part of the process. Because like I said, everyone is under tremendous pressure. At times you need to just step away from the script And just recharge yourself by making each other laugh and saying crazy things and just kind of, like I said, recharge your batteries a little bit and then you get back into the script. These days, I I think there's much less of it.
0: Yeah, it's hard. Now, what were some of the most fun rooms that you've been in? Because you've been in considerably named rooms, but what are some of the most fun rooms you were in and what are things that stick out to you?
1: Very early on in my career, um, my partner David Isaacs and I were on the Tony Randall Show at MTM. And the writing staff was Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, who basically ran the Bob Newhart Show. Um, Tom then went on and created ALF. Uh, Jay went on and created um, Days and Nights of Molly Dodd and a number of terrific shows. Also Gary David Goldberg, who later went on to create Family Ties, yep. and yep. Hugh Wilson, who went on to create WKRP in Cincinnati and also became a big director, Police Academy, First Wives Club, things like that. Um, so that was, that was a great room. And then in Cheers, uh, when I was in a room with Glenn Charles and Les Charles and the great David Lloyd and the great Jerry Belson, um, it was like the Algonquin Round Table. So that was uh, an amazing room. And and I've also been in rooms with Larry Gelbart. I've been in rooms with James L. Brooks. Uh, I've been blessed in that regard. And I also like to think that I'm smart enough that when I was in those rooms with those gentlemen That I soaked up as much as I could from them. I really tried to learn and appreciate the fact that, oh my God, I'm a pitcher and Sandy Colfax is
0: teaching me how to throw a curveball. Yeah, I I totally get that. I all those years I tried to soak up so much and I tried to really listen to the different ways people created things or the different ways directors made things. I, I know you on one of your blogs mentioned how like every star thinks they're funny or, or famous people always feel like they can say whatever they want. And it, it really is true is everybody can have a good idea. Everybody has some humor to them, but to week in and week out, day in and day out, be able to write and produce and create a show and to give it when you need it, that's a totally different skill And to be funny in the moment when you know okay, that line didn't work with an audience and we have to fix it now. And we got to shoot now. How do we, what's better than that? What alts do we have? Who's got a good idea?
1: Right. Right. You know, sometimes uh, an actor, when I was working on a multi-camera show like Cheers or Frasier or the Connors and there is when there's no pandemic, Um, a studio audience, which is great, and the actors feed off the energy of the audience. And an actor will come to me and will like pitch a joke. And I'll say to him, do you really think that 200 strangers sitting up in those bleachers is going to laugh out loud at that joke? And they usually then quickly back off (laughs) because that's, that's really, The job is to make strangers laugh, not just your
0: friends. Right, and that's I think a danger that we fall into sometimes, or a danger. I think that's sometimes why movies about or shows about Hollywood as a whole sometimes struggle is because we all know how much of those things happen. But to the outside world, it's a foreign thing or it seems strange. The joke you have with your friends (laughs) that doesn't work with 200 strangers. Most of the time. Right. And that's
1: one of the reasons why I think there's a danger in single camera comedies, which are filmed like a movie with no audience, because they're not held accountable. So when the showrunner and three or four of the writers sit and watch a rough cut of the show, well, they may think something is funny and it might be funny to them, but it's not funny to America or the world. And there's, there's a lot of that where I watch single camera shows and I go, you know, this, this just isn't funny. And if you had an audience, the audience would tell you that. And, and so I think sometimes on certain shows that writers can become a little lazy because they're not held accountable. And when you do have a studio audience, yes, you can say crank up the the laugh box, which they do, I think, basically shooting themselves in the foot because people recognize the laugh box and find it completely annoying. But when you get a, a good audience and you get genuine laughter, Uh, It really does help the energy of the show. And it's interesting. I watched over the last few months in the pandemic um, a number of Cheers and a number of Frasier episodes. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to what you see today on multi-camera shows, there are not laughs every second. Uh, I'm watching the Big Bang Theory and people go, hello, and it gets a laugh. And I'll have Chinese food, and it gets a laugh. You are, really? And that gets a laugh. And you're going, wait, no one is going to actually laugh at at all of that. And so if on Cheers, we would go 15, 20 seconds, and there would be no laughs. But then somebody would say something genuinely funny, and there would be a burst of actual um, laughter. In fact, you'll notice on Cheers, uh, there is a disclaimer at the very beginning of the show that Cheers is filmed before a live studio audience. We had to put that up after seven or eight episodes because people were accusing us of sweetening the, uh, the laughter. And we were saying, no, no, th- this is the actual studio audience laughing at those jokes. So we had to put that disclaimer in there just to tell people that, no, this is real.
0: Yeah, we we actually had a similar thing because of the number of shows that are not being filmed in front of audiences. We're we're doing that now and doing the voiceover for we're filmed in front of a TV audience. There's something special about authentic laughter. Yep. That you can't you can't make up. And I think that's the thing, even when you're watching at home, authentic laughter you feel. The fake laughter always doesn't just it, it rings untrue, I think, whether you realize what you're reacting to or not when you play with an audience as a as a performer we build we rise we can raise things and let the crest of the wave kind of go down and then hit the punchline and and time it out and it just it's smooth it's why you know on the Roseanne show we tackled a lot of really serious topics you know I think that's also something like with Cheers you know you guys didn't just do surface level jokes joke joke there were things going on in people's lives where it's right and And i think that also i think makes for better laughs because you can you connect you empathize your all of your emotions are in play it's not just like trying to hit you with as many jokes as fast as we can but also there's a dynamic with an audience where you got to earn those laughs and and that feedback is so valuable in a production because before it goes out to the world, you got to test it in front of 200 real people and they don't care who's the star of the show. They don't care (laughs) who wrote it. They don't care whose name is on it or who's directing or any of that stuff. They only care, was this moment funny for me?
1: That's true, that's true. It's true for the first five or six years. Because I'll be honest, once your show is a giant hit, then people come in just primed to laugh, and then they will start laughing at anything. Um, you probably experienced that on Roseanne. At first, people are going, "What is this show? Who are these people what What is this about?" Oh, I think I saw a couple of episodes of this once, and oh yeah, my friend said this is a good show or Um, damn, I was trying to get in to see one show and it was closed, so they let me get into this thing. I don't know what this thing is. I wanted to see Mork and Mindy. I want to see Robin Williams, who's this? Um, Those audiences, yeah, you really have to earn the laughs. But boy, the last couple of years on Cheers, um, we had to be extra hard on ourselves as, as writers. And you could say, well, the audience at home is going to be just as forgiving and just as prime to laugh, but I guess our pride is like, no. (laughs) We want a season 11 episode of Cheers to be funny on its own so that 30 years from now, when somebody who is 25 years old discovers Cheers for the first time on Hulu and they watch that episode from season 11, they go, yeah, wow, that was really funny. They don't go,
0: what was the big deal about this show? I think sometimes now we try to be so timely that we get stuck in just this moment. I think there was much more universal family and life oriented.
1: Absolutely. The shows were more relatable.
0: Yeah. And, and, they crossed yeah. cultures, they crossed, they crossed gender, they crossed orientation, they crossed all of those divides, because it was life experiences.
1: Right, and the shows were all character based, because it was as important or more important for us on shows like MASH and Cheers and Frasier and other shows that I've worked on, it was more important that you cared about the characters that their problems felt real, and you had a rooting interest in them solving those problems. And the best humor doesn't come out of jokes. It comes out of character and attitude. And those things don't change. Those things are universal. And it's why you can watch an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show from almost 60 years ago and still relate and still find it funny because human nature hasn't changed. And um, I think that's true with uh,
0: a lot of shows, including Roseanne. I think people mix up a funny line or a funny statement with something that's really funny for a story and for a show and a character. In comedy, most of the time, the things that are funny for all of us are not funny to that character.
1: Right, yeah. No, characters do not know, or they should not
0: know, that they're in a comedy. Yeah, they, they're not supposed to be clowning or gilding the lily of the joke, right? They're right. supposed to be experiencing an authentic thing for them and their life experience. It's the rest of us who get to laugh, or sometimes their peers, friends, whoever, can laugh at their expense, but it's serious to the most of those characters about what's going on in their life, and that's that's where you connect with people and you reach an authentic place. I feel as a writer is somebody can go, I felt that way. So they're either laughing or they're, or they're commiserating.
1: Right. And the characters have to be well-defined and different from each other. So a line that Woody would have, you can't just give that line to Carla or to Frazier. So it's, it's very important to have well-defined characters. And I've always felt frustration is really one of the keys to comedy. So if you take a character and you take him out of his comfort zone and you put him in some pressurized situation, they will react in absurd, unusual ways. But they're still in character.
0: Right.
1: They're still in character and how Frasier would tackle a problem is gonna be different from the way Norm would tackle a problem. And that all gets back to, to character and not jokes.
0: Who are some of your favorite characters that you got to contribute to or that you worked on projects? Like what are iconic characters to you? I would say
1: Hawkeye. I loved writing for Hawkeye. I loved writing for Sam and Diane, on uh, on Cheers. Um, loved writing for uh, for Frazier, for Niles, for Martin, on um, and on Frazier. Yeah. Overall, I would say, you know, characters who I wish I could have written for, Phil Silvers as uh, Sergeant Bilko. I know I'm going way back. Jackie Gleason as Ralph Cramden on The Honeymooners. Again, I'm, you know, back in the Stone Age. Um, (laughs) Classics, though. Those those are great characters. Um, uh, I loved um, the uh, George character on Seinfeld. That would have been just a a great character to write. Um, I would have loved to have written uh, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, uh, Rhoda, Lou Grant,
0: uh, Mary. I'm I'm sensing a bit of a theme here. A little bit of frustration, people who are trying so hard to achieve things in their lives, but, but have the normal obstacles that we all face. I think, right. To me, I'm a big authentic story person. I, I am too. I, I feel like, you know, the more we try to create some crazy scenario that could almost never happen and and create weird dynamics or a weird word that becomes the dominant thing of an episode, those just don't ring true for me. I want to talk about what it's like to deal with your family or what it's like to have a loved one who just drives you crazy or, you know, the, the frustration of work, but knowing you need the job and knowing there's part of it that you love, but the other part drives you crazy, you know was a great
1: line that Carl Reiner, who was the creator and showrunner of The Dick Van Dyke Show, he, he would tell his writers, go home on the weekend, have a fight with your wife, and then come in on Monday morning and tell me about it.
0: <laughs> right. Yep. Because, and or with your kids, you know, I, you know so many of the stories ended up on The Roseanne Show were related to people that, you know, we had a gentleman named Dave Rathner who was a really good writer, but he had eight kids. I mean, he had nothing but information and time and experience <laughs> across a big gap. I was like, of course, you're a brilliant writer. As you, you know, and being a parent. Did he sleep through most of the rewrites? No, he, he man, he was a workaholic, but I mean, we've had so many, you know, Sid Youngers, uh, you know, so many of these people, you know, I got to watch Don Foster and um, Chuck Lorre when he was new you know, and all of these things, you know, along the way, Kevin Abbott, uh, Matt Berry. I mean, I could name drop for years based purely on- Those are all terrific names. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. And I love what they do. I, I get worried as we do jokes per page. And I think you made the perfect analogy for why I believe multi-camera comedy will always have a place in television. If we- Leave it as authentic, and we trust our audience.:
1: Well, part of the problem now, too, is the networks, because networks now are so terrified that if you go ten seconds without a laugh, that the viewer is going to tune out. Mm-hmm. So they just keep you know, pushing you know more jokes, more yeah, jokes, jokes more jokes. And the result is these shows make no sense because you'll have a scene in the kitchen and the basic thrust of the scene is the husband telling the wife that he's got a busy day and will be home late. And you just have to pull these jokes out of your ass where back and forth the husband and wife have these clever pithy lines. and again, as an audience member, you're going, no one talks like that. No
0: one talks like that. This is this is dumb. Or you, you just zinged me five times and no one got mad. Like, that's one of those things. Too oh, yeah, was- I love that. Yeah, where
1: people insult other people, and they just let it go.
0: Right. And as much as I like to think I'm good natured, you only get so many before my sharp tongue comes back. And I think that's right. one of those things. I miss that in television shows. You know, we, my writing partner and I, we write, and when we go and we're pitching stuff, I get asked questions like, "How many jokes per page?" or, you know, "Do you think people will be comfortable with that?" because that's a serious topic. And I'm like, "Yeah, my whole career is off watching not just our show, but you know, Cheers and, and you know, Frasier and all." Frazier was a therapist. There wasn't a single easy topic in the entire series. That's the whole point. Exactly. Exactly. I love writers, especially I've spent a lot of time around former stand-ups. Things you might say in a stand-up set or to each other when you're two comedians going after each other jokingly, that's not what you can say out in the real world or to people that you don't know real well.
1: I mean, you'll notice on Cheers for the hundreds of thousands of jokes and laughs through the course of that series there are almost no there's very very few norm fat jokes Mm -hmm. because we
0: just we didn't want to go there i think there's two is when you take that high road or you this is the thing i miss about old television too is when you don't use all the words you could use That's some of the humor too, is you play the game of telling someone how you feel, but doing it in a much more convenient, like my favorite scenes, and I write scenes like this all the time, where two parents have to have a conversation, but the kids are in the room and you're trying not to say the things you don't want to say in front of your kids, but you're still trying to have your conversation because you need to get it out. And usually, inevitably, at the end, your kid looks at you and says, so really, it's like that. And you're just like... (laughs) this is why we shouldn't have ever had this conversation. But I mean, in reality,
1: people don't approach other people and just lay out what they're thinking. Right. They go out of their way to do anything but, okay? They'll be passive aggressive. They'll send out certain messages. They'll phrase things a certain way they'll do whatever they can not to actually have to say you know what i think you're really cheap right you know but that's the message they want to get across but they'll they'll do it in other ways like oh great hamburger helper again <laughs> right
0: <laughs> you know? oh leftovers again great
1: right you know again people don't want to just confront other people and unburden themselves and share what they're thinking so they try to convey it in in other ways and it's kind of your job as a comedy writer to find those ways and a lot of comedy comes out of that Mm -hmm. it's like okay how do you get across to somebody that you think
0: they're an asshole? Now you transitioned and did a lot of directing right from the directing side of things. Now it's about taking those words and putting them on their feet and making them work and trying to highlight them. It's a gift. I think if you write, because I think you get some insight into things and sometimes more subtlety, but maybe take us through that transition to directing and your favorite parts of directing. I became a director because I had been
1: a showrunner for many years and had been on the stage and had worked with directors and had worked with actors in reblocking and had been in editing. And it got to the point where uh it was just a slog. I did not look forward to going down to the stage because it meant um run through and then having to go back to the office and rewrite for many hours and so you just go down to the stage holding your breath that the script is in good shape that you're not going to be there till four o'clock in the morning and i thought to myself you know there's something wrong if i'm in television and i don't look forward to going down to the stage because the stage should be fun and so i said then then i'm going to direct I would rather be on the stage all day and be with the actors and and play than to dread having to come down to the stage at 5 o'clock. So that was what got me into it. And then it took several years of, of auditing and watching Jim Burroughs and Andy Ackerman and Jeff Melman and another Uh, and other groups of of really good directors before I finally got my shot. David Lee was another mentor. Then there's the whole other side of it, which is the technical side you have to learn. Camera blocking, you know, it's a giant Rubik's cube of cameras moving while the actors are moving and you have four cameras and six actors and you have to get masters and singles of everybody and reaction shots of everybody and two shots. And how do you and, do that
0: with four cameras move and don't stack and don't block and right. exactly. I, I'm, in, I'm in that mode right now. I, I laugh. I actually, Andy, I worked with Andy in my teenage years on Seinfeld and then he came back and was directing on um, the show now. So he's one of the people that I've shadowed and, and followed the same as you. So it's funny. Good he
1: mentor. He's a good, a, he's a good mentor. A great
0: mentor. Once you get it, once
1: you've done it a number of times it sort of falls into place and you understand the pattern and you understand the rhythm and you learn to block the show in such a way that it's easy to to camera block and if you have a good crew when you get to camera blocking day and you're basically choreographing going from move to move to move you'll have a character cross around a couch, and normally the director would say, OK, camera A, you stay with him. Camera B, you take him to a two-shot. Camera C, you do this. Camera X, he's going to fall into your shot. Well, they move around, and all four cameras just look at it, and, and they automatically do those moves. <laughs> you know. And it's because they're going, all right, we, we see what you're thinking. We, yeah. we know what you're doing here. I I wound up loving the technical aspect of it. And, And boy, you talk about unsung heroes, and you talk about people who are invisible, who provide so much to the production of a show. The crew, the lighting people, the camera people, the script supervisors, the first and second ADs, the boom guy that's Best, boy, whatever the from. hell that is. Yeah. They, that's um, where those guys contribute from. so much to shows. Those are the people that really don't get the, the respect that, that they deserve. And boy, they are all just superb craftsmen, prop guys and they all care so mm-hmm. much. It's, yeah, th- it's that's fantastic. The, those that, people, I, I can't, I, I, you know, spend too much time uh, talking about how great all of them are.
0: This show is really, you know, I started with so many of those crew members and I'm going to continue to do crew members because I had a cameraman on, I've had a prop person, I've had a boom operator, people who share that behind the scenes. I think people have an idea of what the creative people do. Some of the writers, it's way more complex, which is why, you know, it's one of the reasons I want to have you on is because you can share that but for people to see what a boom operator does and how they view their job and then what a cameraman does and how he views his job and then how two different camera operators go about it differently. It's a beautiful thing. We are such a collaborative experience. And I a hundred percent believe that they don't get anywhere near enough credit. And it's why I'm trying to shine a light and kind of the goal of this whole thing.
1: They deserve all the accolades and Roses that they can get. As for directing, you know, every director, I guess, brings something to it in terms of their background. Um, I don't come from an acting background, although I've been doing improv for 40 years. And I got great advice once from Jimmy Burroughs, who is arguably the Mozart of multi camera TV directors. And I'm asking about camera angles and this and that. And then he said, you know, if the story works, you can have one camera just shooting the whole master, mm-hmm. and the show will work. And if the story doesn't work, you can have all the camera angles in the world, and the show is still going to be a turkey. I really try to bring that to the table Um, we'll be working on a scene and and a moment and the actors are struggling with something and I'll say, this is a writing problem. This is not you. This is a writing problem. You know, you need another couple of lines to ramp you up there, you know, and it depends on the show too, because when I was doing freelance directing for other people's shows, I would ask them, I'd say if I have an idea for a joke, can I throw it in? Mm-hmm. And some of the producers would say, oh God, yes, please. If you can come up with a, a good joke, fantastic. And other showrunners would go, no, no. We just want to see what we have. And I go, okay, okay, fine. It's, that's your show. Mm-hmm. It's um, your style. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's your style. And look, when you're... Um, when you're a freelance director, um, I know Gail Mancuso, who we mentor, love. And one of my mentors. Yeah, we um, when my partners and I had a show on CBS called Almost Perfect with Nancy Travis in the '90s, um, we had Gail direct a number of episodes for us. Um, she was terrific. When you are a freelance director, you're a substitute teacher. <laughs> You're a substitute teacher. And as as Gail mentioned, it's like, okay, you come in to a situation and nobody knows you and you're the boss. It puts you in sort of an unusual situation when you're freelance directing. The first day is always, you know, a little weird because... You're feeling them out, they're feeling you out. Um, it's, it's kind of a dance until they're comfortable that, oh, okay, this, this guy knows what
0: he's doing. Now, you yeah. have a podcast, Hollywood and Levine. Yes. You know, I, I have fallen down the rabbit hole of your podcast. Um, the, the one that I am kind of stuck on that I keep is the two-parter uh, with Michael Uslan because I'm such a huge Batman guy. (laughs) Batman was like, that was my character. We had DC Comics growing up on the set of the, con or on Roseanne, that we, every week we got the newest comic book. So I was constantly reading. Great. So, and Batman to me is like, it's so funny. I heard you say people wanted to be Superman. People wanted to put a cape on and be Superman, right? Right. And I wanted to be Batman, because I always thought Batman was inherently... A much more interesting character to me, because of the human limitation
1: when I was a kid in an high school and I was six to one hundred and thirty five pounds, um, I would have loved to have the ability to beat the shit out of uh, five or six people in my high school class so I wanted to be uh, <laughs> I wanted to be Superman. What I loved about Batman Two was uh, number one that he was mortal, mm-hmm. and number two that he had all this great stuff yeah. and he had a secret cave. Yeah. It's like, I would love a secret cave. You know, whenever I would shop for a house, I would always ask the realtor, is there a secret cave? Sadly, no. no. There's, there's no house that I can find in Westwood that has a secret cave, or at least one that I know about.
0: Now, how do you describe your podcast to people? Because it, it covers so many topics. It's really interesting and fascinating. Well, it's generally
1: entertainment-based. Right. And I'll, I'll do a lot of huh, war stories about my ersatz career, uh, interviews with various people, Uh different actors, directors. I mentioned Jim Burroughs. I had Jim Burroughs on as a guest. Um, since I come from this wide background, I have a very eclectic group of people that I can draw from. I had Al Michaels from NBC Sports come to the house and talk to me for, um, for an hour about sports sportscasting. Um, I've had showrunners. I like to bring on writers who are excellent and have had amazing careers but names you don't really know, Mm -hmm. you know, and to introduce you to them. There are times when I will really let you in on the process. I will take a 10-minute play that I wrote and I will interrupt it and discuss why I made this choice, what I was going for here, what I was trying to achieve. And so you really kind of get into my mind. Uh, you're sitting over my shoulder, essentially, as, as I'm writing. I do uh, commentary tracks of television shows from time to time. Uh, and I do silly things. I've never done stand-up comedy. You know, I've done improv. And I've done many banquets when I was a baseball announcer. But when you're doing a banquet, people come to see you and they know who you are. And I have like 15, 20 minutes of hilarious baseball related material that I can deliver. But that's different from open mic night when you're up there and there's all these people going, who the hell is this guy? They just stare at you. (laughs) Yeah. So I decided as... Kind of like a David Letterman show, where you know, just try stuff. Open mic night started at eight, and I was on at like nine forty-five. And I said to the audience, "I am going to record it, and I am going to play it back. <laughs> However it goes, whether it works or it's death, whatever it is, um, I'm not going to edit it. I'm not going to sweeten it. This is." what it is and i prepared five minutes of material and i had a specific theme and i had jokes which led to other jokes which led to other jokes which led to other laughs which built to a big payoff five minutes on and off done right so i was scheduled at nine forty-five, and people started performing at eight five minutes You know, so there were probably 20 or so people who came on before me. And I came early because I wanted to see what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised at how bad and how lazy most of these sets were. And they go, they do some bad joke and it wouldn't get a laugh. And they go, okay, well, no more penguin blowjob jokes. Uh, uh, What about this? Uh, You know, or they're, they're looking at their cards and they're shuffling and, Everything, and, and I mean, I grew up going to the comedy store in the 70s with Letterman and uh, Shandling and Leno and uh, and all those guys. And boy, they just worked so hard perfecting their acts. So I got up there to do mine. And the first thing, you the, the look from the audience, it was palpable, I, I wish I had a video of that because they were all looking at me like, what the hell is grandpa doing up here? (laughs) Who is this old guy? So I start my set and after a few seconds it starts getting a couple of laughs and then some more laughs and like third of the way through they like got it. And now everyone is laughing, and they laughed, and they laughed, and they laughed all the way through to the end, where I got a big laugh, and and I got big applause. And when I walked off, a lot of the comedians said, "Oh my God, you know, you're great. He, you know, you should you should do this." And I thought, "No, this is Ted Williams hitting a home run, his last at bat, and retiring." Yep. <laughs> this is I- this is my one set, but it was just a matter of of preparation more than than anything else but I, I so i played it on my podcast you can hear it on that episode and um because i thought you know what i can't lose really because if it works it works yeah if it doesn't if it, doesn't, it doesn't. doesn't and i bomb it's going to be so funny on my podcast the silences
0: well are going to be so, so funny if you have to be brave I mean in any yes I mean in this nature you have to be brave. I did open mic night so I took things I knew and kind of strung them together in the right order and I just remember getting down and feeling awful because the young man who went behind me was terrified because everybody had kind of not done very well. And then I got up and had a great set. And then that poor guy, he did not want to get up. And I'm like, Oh, you're doomed before. Just go play. Like yeah. be brave. Walk it off. And then just, you know, because <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like that's comedy. Like be brave, have an idea of what you want. Have a projection and a mindset of how these things string together and, and build a set. Because that people think right. you just show up and do whatever. And that that's not how comedians do it.
1: Yeah. Well, I figured, you know what, my audience isn't going to be able to relate to me at all right. because I'm at least five years older than all of them. So I said to myself, okay, pick a topic that none of them know anything about and talk about that. And so I talked about being in army basic training. Oh. So I took them all in a world that, none of them knew anything about. I wasn't expecting them to go, you know what it's like, right? You yeah. know, when you got your rifle and you did because I know none of them <laughs> have a clue as right, to what right. basic training was like. And I controlled what I wanted them to know and not know and led them to jokes. Like I said, um, one time, and that was it, and some of the comedians are saying, oh man, weren't you like bitten by the bug to do this? Like, no no not at all i love doing improv and i've been doing improv for years i used to do improv with robin williams that's how long ago but um but that's different that's you're working with people and again you're playing characters and there's not that desperation Mm -hmm. to get up there and be loved
0: um I love improv um, from doing years of improv, uh, mostly at IO West. I love the team aspect of it because sure. you're building with someone. Right. Sure. And I love like, Oh, okay. We're going there. Yes. And how do I make that bigger, better, bolder, right? Like exactly. I'll be your best teammate. Like, and I don't mind being the butt of the joke. I was just all in. I just wanted to make it work. So if I'm the straight person in this setup or
1: in, I'm the in. same way. I, I love being the straight man. Sometimes I'll yeah. be doing a scene and I'll see where my partner is going with it. It's like, okay, set him up.
0: Yeah, set just, him up. Just, just set him up. And, I, and I'll, um, I'll build with you. And I, I love that. I, and there's something so beautiful about it. And there's, again, there's something of improv. You have to be there in that moment because it exists in that one moment in time.
1: I did a scene with Robin once. This was a workshop class. And the, the director would just say, OK, um, Robin and Ken. And it was tough doing improv with Robin, because he was so brilliant. And he would just And so he primarily would use you like a post. So I don't remember what the premise of the scene was, but it begins and Robin just launches into all of this stuff. (laughs) And I finally wait until he takes a breath. And the only thing I can say is, fuck you. And it got a big laugh. And then he launches into his stuff. Again, I don't even know what the hell he's saying. And when he takes another breath, 40 seconds later, I just go, fuck you. And that got a laugh. And this happened like four times. And finally, like the fifth time I said it, it just got a thunderous laugh and lights out. That was the end of the scene. As I'm walking off, I'm thinking to myself, oh God, Robin is just going to hate me. I have staged him. He is just going to hate me. And he put his arms around me and he said, that was fucking great.
0: And you I know, great, Really great, talented people love to see other people shine, and they right. love. And the scene stage. was funny, and that's at all the end matters. of
1: the day, yep. it made the scene funny. And so, for all of his craziness, basically, we set it up so that he was my straight man. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I and I <laughs> had the punchline, and those were the forty-second setups. To, to my punchline. But at the end of the day, OK, was the scene funnier be, because of it? Um, and yeah, you learn to, to really be a partner and not to be a competitor with the person you're on stage with. But you know, that also comes easy for me because I have had a writing partner for over 40 years. So um, I'm, I'm very used to working with a partner and the understanding that the sum is better
0: than the parts. And, you know, so. Talk to me about having a writing partner in that way. I have a writing partner and, and we work so well together. Talk to me about having a long partnership like that and, and some of the advantages and, and things that you really admire.
1: Well, the big advantage is if uh, your car needs to go in for repair, you have someone who can like pick you up and, and, and drive <laughs> My you. My writing
0: partner is going to die laughing that you said that because that's pretty much what we do. Because at this point we have old cars because we haven't so- sold the things yet. But
1: <laughs>
0: uh, well, I would say that the two
1: writers need to be compatible. You can argue over things in the script, but don't make it personal. I mean, there'd be times that David and I would be arguing and arguing and arguing. And then it would be 12 o'clock. We go, okay, let's go to lunch. And we would go to lunch and talk baseball. You need to have sort of the same sensibility. Mm -hmm. And you need to really respect your partner. You need to respect his opinion. Writers work in different ways. Uh, Some writing partnerships will divide up a script, and one partner will write the first act, and the other partner will write the second act, or they'll um, switch off scenes, and then they'll go back, and they'll rewrite each other, or this and that. Um, David and I, for the most part, always wrote head to head. Mm. We were always in a room together, and we would have a writer's assistant taking down the, the script and we would dictate it. Mm -hmm. Um, either they would do shorthand or a computer, but we would dictate the script. And if one of us pitched a joke and the other didn't think it worked or didn't think it was funny. And you go, I don't know. And so the guy who pitched it goes, well, here's why I think it's funny, because da 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 And you still, you're not buying it. You go, no, I still think we can do better. At that point, we always just drop the joke and come up with something else. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That it takes us less time to just come up with a new joke that both of us are happy with than to argue for 15 minutes and have one of the partners upset because he gave in and there's a joke in there that he doesn't believe in. Right. So we do that. And the other thing that we did early on in our career, I mentioned how we write head to head, but once a year, we would take a script and split it up and I would write one act and David would write the other act. And then we would put the two together and do our polish together. And the reason we did that was so that we each felt comfortable writing on our own. So we were a partnership out of choice, not dependence. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, yeah, I know I'm always late, but I'm the funny one. So suck it up. We were partners because we chose to be. And yes, as partners, you split the salary, but we felt, you know what, we're going to go higher in our career if we're together. And once we reach a certain level where we can negotiate, and it's not just Writers Guild minimums, um, then we can negotiate so that each of us makes the salary that a, a solo writer would make. But that was you know, an investment, mm-hmm. an investment of our time and an investment of our career. And I think for comedy writing, it's very helpful because otherwise you're sort of in a vacuum and you'll pitch something and you don't know if it's funny. And at least if there's somebody who you trust who goes, yeah, that's funny. Then you have a little more confidence in it than you would otherwise. when you're just looking at a script and
0: going, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I know. find you pitch. And I I say this to my writing partner all the time. If I pitch you an idea or a joke or whatever, right? If I can't get you to understand it or explain it, and I can't explain it well, then the idea wasn't that good to begin with. So I always take it on myself. Like, if I can't make you laugh with this joke, and there are times I'll pitch a joke and he's like, I don't know. And the performer in me, I'll deliver it. And he he laughs. And I said, and then sometimes the joke that we have is he's like, I didn't want to laugh. I'm like I know so if I could make you laugh with it then it was funny right Right. like it fit but again then you also have to be careful of like I'm not going to be performing that joke I'm not writing that joke for me so the joke can't only be funny from one source right like you have to watch that line too and I'm a big believer we just pitch back and forth and there's times even story ideas or show ideas where I'll pitch something and he's like he goes. I'm not feeling. It. I'm like, okay, I'll work on that, and I'll bring it back later, right? Like I'll.
1: We'll pitch a joke. I'll pitch a joke, and David will go. Oh, okay, I like that area. <laughs> what about if it's this instead of that? And I said, okay, great. And then what if we move that here and blah blah blah? So both of us, you know, kind of have a hand in the joke. And when people say to me, so w- that that joke was yours, right? And I go, um, I I don't remember. Yeah. And it sounds like I'm being coy or being overly humble, but the truth is no, because our thumbprints are on a lot of the a lot of the lines. Yeah. Uh, and then there's days when I'm just hot, and and I pitch out a lot of stuff. Yeah. And David will just kind of let me go. And there are days when David is hot and, and I'm like, okay, this is an easy
0: day for me. <laughs> I think having a sports background helps that because I always say we try to be each other's best teammates. And then I'm always like, I don't have to score the points. I'm fine with an assist or I'm, I'm fine getting this thing. Right. And you we do that. Beat. We
1: call it comedy assist. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually, we actually have, you know, comedy assist and, the other thing is that you always have your partner's back. you know. Um, and I've seen partnerships. They're a writing team in a room. And we're rewriting their script. And the showrunner will go, OK, I don't know about this. Let's, let's do a new joke here. And the one partner will turn to the other partner and say to the room. I told you, I told you that wasn't gonna work, okay? When I hear that, I just go, they're doomed, they're doomed. This is, this is another one or, yeah. or two year
0: this, partnership. This work. Ken, yeah. I, was a, I was a coach for almost 10 years. I was a high school baseball coach. I coached independent and semi-pro ball. I always equate that to when you're little league coach or when you're coach at a high level, Somebody makes an error and the first thing that you hear is that person say, oh, come on, we worked on that at practice. That's your way of saying, it's not my fault. I'm not part of this. Let me get out of here. They take all the blame. And I'm like, that will never work because there will never be trust again because you just sold that person out in front of everybody. Can you've been part of so much television history, entertainment history as a whole, what is it that sparked your desire for this? When did you know you wanted to be in this industry?
1: When it took a while for me to get into the industry. Um, I took a very circuitous route. But when I was a teenager and um, the Dick Van Dyke show was on. And I was in love with Laura Petrie, And I thought, wait a minute. You could be a comedy writer and get a girl like Laura Petri. I, I, I didn't have to throw a spiral. I didn't have to play football. You just had to be funny. I'm funny. I could do that. So that was probably my first inkling. Um, then after college, I was, I was involved in radio. And um, when I got out of UCLA, I was a top 40 disc jockey, bouncing around various cities in the country. And, um, and got tired of playing Kung Fu Fighting five times a night. And um, got tired of program directors telling me, shut up, you're not funny. And so uh, this was now the 70s. And the 70s in television comedy, was truly a golden age with the Mary Tyler Moore Show and All in the Family, Odd Couple, Maud, MASH, Rhoda, the Jeffersons. It was a great time. And so I met my partner, David Isaacs, we were both in the same Army Reserve unit. And uh, I got fired from one of my many radio jobs. And um, called David and said, let's write a script. Neither of us had ever written a script. Um, neither of us had even seen a script. I had to go to a bookstore in Hollywood where on the remainder table, you know how most bookstores will have old books for $2. Well, this had a remainder table of TV scripts. And I bought an Odd Couple script and a Mary Tyler Moore script for 2 bucks a piece. And it's like, oh, okay, interior WJM night. Oh, that's how they do it. So we basically learned together. um, And the way we learned, since we hadn't taken writing classes, was um, we wanted to write a Mary Tyler Moore show. That was, for us, really the gold standard. So back in those days, the only way you could watch a show was to watch it when it was broadcast on television so the mary tyler moore show was on saturday nights at nine so every saturday night david and i would get together and we would watch the show and we would hold up a silver dollar microphone to the speaker and um make an audio cassette of the show then we would go back and write an outline a detailed outline based on the episode and we did that week after week after week until finally we started seeing the patterns and we started figuring out exactly how they told those stories and then we we wrote a spec mary tyler moore show which didn't get us an assignment on the mary tyler moore show but it did get us our first break an assignment on um the Jeffersons. That's how we learned. And I always maintain if I had a girlfriend, if I was getting laid and I was dating on Saturday night, I never would have had a
0: career. Right. Wow. I, that way of coming to it is so good for people to hear because of the dedication and the commitment.
1: Right. I mean, now it's so much easier because you can, you know, watch a whole series. Yeah,
0: you stream them. Oh, you can
1: you can buy a whole series.
0: Yeah, you can watch them whatever you want. Analyze it and watch it to your heart's content. And there's competitions that you can go into to write spec scripts for things. Right. And it's a it's a very different thing. You're trying to find that first job in this business is usually the big thing. Sure. And then if you're a hard worker, you know, usually you kind of navigate your way. Right. Right, what's one of your favorite experiences?
1: Uh, in television? Any of them. In television, David and I had a short-lived series called Big Wave Daves. It was starring Adam Arkin and Jane Kurt Kurtwood Smith, David Morris, Patrick Breen. Um, it was basically three guys go to Hawaii to open a surf shop, like a midlife crisis show. And it was on CBS. The pilot tested really well, but there was no room on the fall schedule for it. Hmm. So CBS came to us. We figured, all right, they'll pick us up for midseason. So CBS came to us around Memorial Day and said, we want to put you on in the summer. We want to put you on after Murphy Brown, Monday night at 9.30. We'll do six episodes. Um, It's what we did with Northern Exposure, and then it you know, went on, and um, there'll be no preemptions. You'll go straight through six weeks in, like, our best comedy time slot following Murphy Brown. And I said, when you need these scripts, when you need these to, to air, and he goes, you know, like, uh, mid-July or something like that. And so we thought about it, and I called up Peter Tortorici, who was the president of CBS at the time. And I said, Peter, we've kind of crunched the numbers, crunched what we have to do in terms, we don't even have a set built. We don't have a crew. We have no writing staff. We have no scripts, nothing. And we have to be on the air in like five weeks. And I said, the only way that we can physically do this is if there is absolutely no interference, none. We understand standards and practices that you have to do. And we're not saying that you guys can't come to table readings and that you can't come to rehearsals and you can't come to show nights. All of that stuff is fine, but no notes. No, we're not turning in outlines to you. We're not turning in scripts to you. We're not turning in rough cuts to you. We're not turning in the opening titles to you. We're not turning in anything to you because we don't have the time. David and I have to think of a show on Friday afternoon and outline it and come in and write it Saturday and Sunday. And Monday morning, it goes to the table. Okay. And a week and a half later, it goes on the air. And, and I said, I totally understand and respect if you guys are uncomfortable with that, in which case we will respectfully decline and hope that you pick us up later for, um, for a mid-season show. And Peter said, do it. And we only made six. We got really good ratings. We should have been picked up. Jeff Zagansky didn't think that Adam Arkin was a TV star, idiot. Um, And they had, you know, uh, you know, a a show starring uh, Faye Dunaway coming up. So they didn't, you know, need us. Um, And um, we had the most fun on that show because we just did whatever the fuck we wanted. And it was, great fun long hours but great fun and uh and i'm really proud of those shows and some of them i have illegally um posted on uh youtube so you can go to youtube and you can see a few episodes of big wave days
0: what is the first thing you look for on a call sheet
1: um to make sure roseanne's name isn't on it
0: (laughs) just living to get me in trouble huh (laughs) (laughs)
1: Roseanne and I are not on the best of terms
0: regardless of whether people I care for like each other or not I prefer to make my own opinion and and have my own thoughts on people and I can have relationships outside of other people's
1: great great I love the show right um but she and I have gotten into a blog war one time which was kind of amusing but Roseanne is not going to listen to this podcast if she sees that I'm on it. When I she don't censor my your head. answers.
0: This is proof that, that I'm open-minded and that all answers are welcome. Okay. All right. what, what's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet?
1: Maybe that there's um, difficult pre-shoots and not enough time allotted to do them.
0: Yeah, that, that always is an issue. Yeah. Okay, what is your favorite thing to see at craft services?
1: Omelet bars. Oh, okay. I love when there's omelet bars.
0: Okay, now on the flip side, what would you hate to see at craft services? What do you hate there?
1: <laughs> what do I hate there? Probably bologna sandwiches. If I saw a bologna sandwich on a craft services table. <laughs> I'd be very disappointed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> roaches, I, also. I don't like to see roaches <laughs> or cockroaches on... Uh, I don't like to see flies buzzing around. Nothing that moves on its own. I don't want
0: anything that moves on its own at craft services. Nothing. Nothing that moves on its own. That's right. And I have worked some low budget things over the course of my life, especially when I worked (laughs) on the cruise side of things. I've seen a few things move and that's not, not a pretty picture. Oh yeah. Ken Levine, how do you define success?
1: I would say doing what you love and getting paid for it. And doing it with people you love.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. All right. I always ask people, how are you doing based on your definition of success?
1: I'm doing very well. I feel that I've led a charmed career. You know, I never created that monster Seinfeld hit where, you know, I suddenly can buy my own planes. Um, but um, I've worked on great shows with great people um, at a time when television was really fun. And like I said, I think I've led a a charmed career. So um, I I am nothing but grateful.
0: Okay, what is the one thing you want on every set? A
1: level of calm. I, I, I believe that people do their best work when they're in a, a calm, supportive, creative situation. So the one thing that I try to establish whenever I'm either a showrunner or a director is to set that tone that, you know what, this is going to be a calm, fun work, uh, work week. So that would be my answer to that.
0: Yeah, I, I come with um, an enthusiasm, but a calm kindness. Uh, Randall Winston, who did the show, who's a producer, I, he said his tent poles were strong, calm, kind. And I, yeah. thought, I thought those were brilliant. And, and yeah. it, making an environment where people want to show up and feel like they can be creative and work. If, if it's chaos, then it turns into chaos and it can exactly. go sideways in a hurry. And you as the director, I feel, you have to be unflappable,
1: mm-hmm. okay? Because they take their cue from you. And if the director is frazzled, then everyone else is gonna be frazzled. And it's really your job to try to get the best out of everybody, whether it's the actors or the prop guy, or the makeup person, and and I think you do that by being supportive, by being kind, by creating uh, a, an atmosphere where you want to go to work.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, on the flip side of that, what's the first thing you would eliminate from any set?
1: Tension. Tension. I agree. Uh, if if I'm a showrunner and there's a director who yells. There's no yelling on my, my sets, OK? Directors do not yell at crew people. Uh, crew people do not yell at each other. Actors do not yell at assistants or PAs because there's onions on their uh, patty melt. And again, yes. I don't care whether you're the star of the show or whatever, there's no yelling on, on any of
0: my sets. I love that. My writing partner and I, having grown up in this, I've always said I want to set a tone for everything we do. And in some ways, from the start of just writing it, we already set somewhat of a tone. And I I believe that you create a collaborative environment where you value people from top to bottom. And certain things just aren't necessary. We don't need to yell at people, you know, I work with an AD, Amy Brown who does this really smooth motherly thing is every once in a while when people start losing their mind, she never yells every once in a while. She gets quieter and people will lean in to hear, and she's got them right. Like, I think that's so brilliant is, and she has had to tell producers at times, if you want to yell or I'm not that person. And I just respect that so much. You know know who you are, know how you want to live, you know, know how you want to carry yourself for your work. I mean, I've fired directors for, for that,
1: you know. And look, there are some good directors, uh, you know, John Rich, who directed Dick Van Dyke Show and All in the Family and everything. Um, great director, a million Emmys and everything. He's a yeller. He screams at people. We had a chance to get him for a pilot. Not a chance. Mm. Not a chance.
0: Okay. Now, what is the best gift you've gotten from a project?
1: Miami. (laughs) Uh, No, you know, I think I've been lucky enough that a number of shows I've worked on will outlive me. And um, that people will be enjoying laughing, getting something out of work that I did 40 years ago, maybe 40 years from now and and that is that is a tremendous gift
0: okay how do you want those people who work with you to remember you
1: i think as as a professional as somebody who was very professional and what were those three things strong kind and what was Str- the other strong, one
0: strong calm kind yeah yeah that 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 pretty well says it So what is the legacy you want your loved ones to take from your life?
1: That I was a good husband, father, citizen, and um, along the way, brought joy to,
0: to a lot of people. I I think you've you've done that, you know, um, you have work that definitely speaks volumes, you've created a career uh, of just so many different layers and levels, and I have so many friends in common with you, and your name came up in writing circles, in production circles, in improv circles, like, and it was so funny, because I was always aware of you growing up a Dodger fan, for all of these different reasons. And it's so interesting. Yeah, and 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 so I hope they say nice things. Yeah, everybody. of that guy. Well, that's the thing is, we kind of somehow became friends a long time ago via social media, and I've read a lot of your stuff and listened to a lot of your stuff, and everybody has always said kind things about you, and I always feel like that's such an important thing, because I feel like we're leaving a legacy every day, whether we realize it or not. Uh And for me, the impact you have on people, the way people feel when you leave them matters. And I think in this business, we are sharing who we are with the world.
1: I got a great compliment from my daughter. My daughter um, is a comedy writer now. My daughter and, and her partner, Annie and John, and they have moved up the ranks and they're doing very well. And recently, they took a meeting with some big exec who I had known. And uh, so my daughter texted me
0: and said, Dad, thanks for not being an asshole on the way up. It means everything, (laughs) you know. And so if that is part of your legacy, that's a beautiful legacy to have. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the call sheet. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for plugging my podcast. Absolutely. So if people want to check you out, Hollywood and Levine, if they want to check out your blog, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. If you'd like more or if you'd like to see some of the video with some of the visuals, you can always check us out at any of our social medias at Vicious Call Sheet or check us out on YouTube. Thanks for checking out Fish's Call Sheet. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. We have a lot of other episodes where we cover a lot of different categories in our entertainment industry, but I'm so happy to celebrate all the people who make production possible.